Hello, listeners. My name is Craig Zerpolo, and welcome back to Why Science, a podcast about behavioral and emotional health research at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. This podcast is produced by COBE, the College Behavioral and Emotional Health Institute, with support from the Alt Lab at VCU and the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Music for Why Science is provided by Butcher Brown. Stream their new EP, Virginia Noir, at butcherbrown.bandcamp.com. Our guest today is Dr. Everett Worthington, a clinical psychologist and the Commonwealth Professor of Counseling Psychology at Virginia Commonwealth University. He is a preeminent scholar on forgiveness, publishing over 350 articles and book chapters, as well as 35 books on the subject over nearly 30 years of research. Dr. Worthington, it's such a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Craig. So forgiveness is a kind of abstract concept that you may not think about as scientific necessarily. What was your first experience that turned you on to science? Well, I was interested in science basically because I had really poor eyesight as a kid, really didn't learn to read, but I could do math. And so I got a lot of rewards for math. And so I ended up going to the University of Tennessee and getting a bachelor's degree in nuclear engineering, and then going to MIT and getting a master's degree in nuclear engineering, and then teaching nuclear physics for four years. Uh, and then only then did I go back into psychology and found out that science is science. It's just applied to a different topic. So how did you end up studying forgiveness in particular? I really got interested in it out of my clinical work. So I used to uh, do uh, uh, quite a lot of clinical work in terms of seeing couples. And uh, as soon as you start seeing couples that are having difficulties in their relationship, you're talking about a lot of hurts and a lot of unforgiveness. So that really got me interested in forgiveness from a clinical perspective. Uh, I'm a Christian I had the value that uh, forgiveness was important, but it took a graduate student to drag me kicking and screaming into studying forgiveness as a scientific enterprise to, uh, to kind of change my focus a little bit. So when you're talking about studying forgiveness, how would you define forgiveness? We look at forgiveness as being actually two different concepts that are related to each other but not joined at the hip. So to make a decision to forgive is about deciding how I intend to behave towards someone in the future. I may decide I'm going to treat this person as a, as a valued and valuable person. I may never get to carry out my intention, so it's not really behavior because the person could get hit by a car tonight and, and I never get to carry this out. But I've still made that decision to forgive. But I can make a sincere decision to forgive and hold on to it for the rest of my life and still be upset every time I think about the incident or the person that offended or hurt me. And so that suggests there must be a second type of forgiveness, which we call emotional forgiveness. And this is the emotional replacement of negative, unforgiving emotions with positive emotions toward the other person, like empathy or sympathy or compassion or even love. 
for the person if it, for example, is my wife and uh, and she might have hurt my feelings, which she never would do. <laughs> and so the way that you're conceiving of that, there's uh, a projection of that going on to another person. How do you define self-forgiveness as opposed to forgiveness in general? So self-forgiveness is actually a lot more complicated than forgiveness because our experience of self-forgiveness is really more about being the offender than it is about being the victim. So usually I experience self-condemnation for having hurt someone or or having done something wrong. And that self-condemnation usually means that I just can't haul off and let myself off the hook. There are preconditions. So first of all, I have to like take this to God or to whatever I hold to be sacred, whether that's humanity or or nature. People say, I did a crime against nature, a crime against humanity. So, you know, the person isn't necessarily religious who does this, but people who are religious do take that offense to God and then do whatever it takes for them to make that right within their faith perspective. Then I have hurt or offended this other person. Maybe that's even had social fallout into the lives of other people who know that person. So I need to do something to try to make amends, to try to make this right. And I may have injured myself. So people in wartime situations who do things or witness things that they find morally objectionable later, they feel like they have done a moral injury to their own psyche. And so they have to do something to try to clear up that uh, damage psychologically. So once a person is taking care of the sacred problem and the social problem and the psychological problem, then the person can go through basically the same steps to reach forgiveness that uh, is aimed at forgiving someone else who has hurt them. But even then with self-forgiveness, it keeps being complicated because I may be able to fully forgive myself, but I might say, I just can't accept myself for having done that. You know, how could I do such a terrible thing? And so I have to deal with self-acceptance as well as self-forgiveness. And then I have to make a commitment that I don't want to do that again. I don't want to get in this predicament again. So there are like six steps to get to self-forgiveness in a responsible, fully self-forgiving and self-accepting way. And I know that when you're doing research on even a seemingly simple topic, the the application of research to that topic can make it very complicated. I imagine starting with a topic as complicated as forgiveness can be difficult to research. How do you measure forgiveness and what are your scales? So a lot of people have made up self-report instruments of forgiveness. And and these are just going through a standard psychological test construction and psychometric measurement process to try to show that you're getting the same result again and again, that this test has some kind of reliability to the scores. And that's measuring what you would like it to measure, what you think it's measuring, that has some kind of validity to the way you interpret the scores. So self-report is one way you measure forgiveness, but there are many ways. So we developed a test to measure uh, cortisol, Cortisol being a neurohormone, 
that is excreted by the uh, adrenal glands uh, in a stress response. So if a person is unforgiving toward someone, they get stressed when they think about this person, think about the event that had hurt them. And it's not long before their body is producing cortisol. So we measured for years, for a, about a seven-year project, we measured spit and uh, you know, assayed the cortisol within it. There are other physiological measures that we've used over the years too. So there are peripheral physiology measures. So you can measure blood pressure or heart rate or skin conductance. You can measure the variability of the fast and slow part of a heart wave, which is called your heart rate variability. And that kind of tells you how resilient you are so besides self-report, you have a number of physiological measures. Uh, actually, MRIs have been used to get a template of what the brain looks like when they're just kind of thinking about making a judgment and then getting the person to think about whether they make this judgment to forgive the person and then looking at the difference between the templates and which parts of the brain are suppressed in their activity and which parts are more active. And then there are other chemical measures. Oxytocin has been used, which used to be thought of as a bonding peptide, but really I think now we think of it more as a relationship attentive peptide because it's not just that oxytocin goes up if we look into the eyes of someone we love or a baby that's just born. But actually, if we're fighting with somebody and we look into their eyes, oxytocin goes up even though negativity is happening. So, But oxytocin is a good a measure, chemical measure, and, and there are other measures, alpha amylase, just a, a number of uh, different types of measures. Behavioral measures, not so much, because remember the way that I defined forgiveness was a behavioral intention that we may never get to act on, or an emotional change. So behavioral measures, there have been some, but they really are pretty gross in terms of what they can tell you. They're not really fine-tuning about forgiveness. Well, it's obvious from looking at all of that that forgiveness research has developed a lot over the short time span that it's existed. I know like it's only been about 25 or 30 years that forgiveness has been studied academically. Why do you think that is, that forgiveness was such a late bloomer, even though it's a concept that's been around as long as humans have interacted with each other? I think there are probably several reasons. One of those is that I, I think the people who talked about forgiveness most were people who were religious and people who were philosophers. And so with social scientists, who are the ones that were going to be most drawn to this in the beginning, although biologists and, and other uh, brain uh, scientists and even a behavioral economists have looked at it since then, the ones who got drawn to it at the beginning kind of looked at it as, oh, this is something religious. And then, ironically, this theologian named Lewis Smedes wrote a book, Forgive and Forget, Healing the Hurt You Don't Deserve. And he made an argument that forgiveness is something that is good for you to do. Well, that really appealed to therapists because it was like, oh, I could teach my clients that. They don't even have to be religious. This theologian almost didn't mention God in this entire book. So it's just a theologian who's writing this book that's really actually pretty secular. 
And it appealed to the clinical psychologists. It, it also appealed to researchers and got a researcher at Wisconsin, uh, Robert Enright, started looking at forgiveness. And we were shortly right after uh, Bob Enright and his uh, group of, of folks and started looking at it at VCU. A lot of the discussion that we've had about forgiveness so far talks about how it can be similar and different across the lines of religion and non-religious people. Some of the studies that you've done have specifically focused on Christians, and some of them have been non-denominational. What have you found in your study of forgiveness that applies to spirituality, and what is kind of universal about it? One of the things we've found is all major religions value forgiveness, and that if you ask people about their religious affiliation, their values or commitments. What you find is that all five of the major religions, people who endorse those uh, those religions, usually rate themselves as more forgiving than people who don't endorse any religion. But there are differences across the different religions, of course, just because in Christianity, forgiveness is a very central concept on a probably one of the two major concepts in the entire religion. But in religions like Islam or uh, or Judaism, forgiveness is more of an embedded topic. So in, in Islam, it's embedded within a kind of a pursuit of justice. And, and within uh, Judaism, uh, within uh, the idea of return or tshuva or what we might call repentance. So, so it's a secondary, it's a more a derived construct, but it's still important in both of those religions and also in the Eastern religions too. And I know you talked a little bit earlier about how forgiveness can relate to certain aspects of physical and mental health, like if you're talking about stress and things like that. But if a therapist is trying to tell someone about the value of forgiveness, you know, what does that mean tangibly for your physical and mental health if you're able to forgive someone? Last year, we just brought out a an edited book, Lauren Toussaint, myself, Lauren Toussaint at Luther College, myself, and David Williams at Harvard, brought out a book called Forgiveness and Health. And we got 20-some-odd scholars to write chapters about how forgiveness affects different parts of health. And pretty much one assumption that it's stressful to feel unforgiveness goes through a lot of that writing. But then there are all kinds of other, besides the ways that forgiving can lower your stress reaction and therefore not end up with the cascade of stress-related disorders that people have. There are other things like alcoholism. You know, people don't drink as much if they're not angry and unforgiving towards somebody. And, and those end up having secondary health consequences also. So there are many, many ways that forgiveness can affect physical health directly. And then it can affect it indirectly. You know, it can affect it indirectly by affecting your relationships. So if you're having a, a struggle with a romantic partner, you are experiencing a lot of stress in the reaction. You're not getting the support that you ordinarily might get. And we know that marriage, for example, is highly related to health that people who are married or in a marriage-like relationship have much better health than people who are divorced or single uh, do. And uh, it's just, I think, because of the social support 
uh, aspects of that. So mental health is also affected by forgiveness. If a person forgives, actually, usually they get less depressed if they were depressed by quite a bit and less anxious and their hope goes way up. They don't feel trapped as much. And so the more that mental health is aided, that has an indirect effect on physical health as well. And so there's obvious benefits to forgiveness, but I feel like the difficult aspect of it wouldn't necessarily be telling someone, you know, this will be beneficial to you. It'd be the process of forgiving. And so one of the processes that you've proposed and that you've researched a lot is called REACH. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could tell us about REACH, like what those ac that acronym stands for and what you found in your research on REACH. Yeah. So let me start by just talking about appealing to somebody to forgive because it's good for them to forgive. So it has a positive effect. There's been quite a lot of research that shows that that will help people forgive and therefore it will have a positive effect on their health and mental health and relationships. But the effect is small. Uh, so if I give you a number of standard deviations that your your score would change, it's going to be a, about a steady state of two-tenths of a standard deviation. Now, that's, that's not trivial. That, that matters a lot. And it doesn't matter, you know, like um, you can tell a person, you need to forgive because this is good for you. You'll be physically healthy. You'll be mentally healthier. You'll be have better relationships. You'll have a better spiritual life. You, you just need to forgive. And people are like, Cool. And, you know, two-tenths of a standard deviation better in, in their, uh, you know, in the amount of forgiveness they have and also the kind of trickle-down. But um, there's a much more lasting type of uh, forgiveness, and, and that's a forgiveness that's not based on self-enhancement, but it's really based on somehow benefiting the other person, being other-oriented, blessing the other person. And that is not something that is quick. You know, whereas self-enhancing forgiveness is like within 10 minutes, you're going to have all the effect you're ever going to have with that. Within 10 minutes of appealing to somebody, listen, I know this person has really hurt you badly. It would be good to just bless them. But this does not go over with most fo most folks, not right away. That That's a message that takes a long time to go. So there's this process of emotional replacement that happens, and that's what that that reach forgiveness model does is it it takes people through five steps by which they can have experiences that may change their emotions. So R stands for recall the hurt, but try to recall it in a way that is not like we usually do, which is what a jerk that person was for hurting me, or oh, I've been hurt so much, I've been damaged, I may never get over this. Well, yeah, those could be very true. I, you know, I've been hurt by some jerks in my life, but uh, you know, uh, but that's not going to help our emotions to change. So it's much more helpful if we go to a kind of a second stage of E and emotionally replace some of the negative with the positive. We try to get people to, to enter that, you know, the door through which they enter is, is through empathizing with the other person. Can you get into the experience of the other person? Uh, 
you know, we usually, if we've hurt somebody, we didn't get up that morning and go, oh, hot dog, today I'm going to ruin somebody's life. Usually we're like, no, I'm going to help this person, you know, because they haven't listened to me before. It would really help them if I yell at them. Well, not so much from their standpoint, but, you know, I think I have good, the best of intentions. Now, that's not always true, but many times that's the case. And so if people can get into the frame of mind of the other person, what was this person doing? What was this person thinking? How do they think they were going to help? And then that helps them, you know, build a, a kind of competing emotion. And that competing emotion is like a, a chemical that is a, a base that is titrating away an acid of unforgiveness in their, in their stomach or in their soul. So the second step is E, uh, em, uh, empathize with the person or uh, emotionally replace the negative with the positive. A is to give an altruistic gift of forgiveness, a, an other-oriented gift, not the self-enhancing gift of this is good for me. That's the way we start people down the road because that's so quick and easy for it, and almost everybody will do that. But now they've spent time thinking about this. Now they're much more ready to say, okay, I can kind of see where where the person came from. And I know that in my life, I've been hurt. And when somebody has forgiven me, it's been such a weight off of my shoulders. Can I just give that same kind of gift to this person? And although they may not be ready to do that soon, it may take a while, eventually they can make that altruistic gift. The last two steps are pretty quick. C is commit to the forgiveness that you experience. And the reason people do that is so that H, they can hold on to that whenever they doubt. So that's recall the hurt, emotionally replace the negative with positive by starting with empathy, give an altruistic A, an altruistic gift of forgiveness, C, commit to the forgiveness you experience, and H, hold on when it's rough. So now that we understand how REACH works, what kind of studies have you done on REACH and what have you found about it academically? Well, we have uh, probably run about... I would guess 10 to 12 studies uh, looking at how people use this reach to, uh, to change their own unforgiveness. And we've done many of them in psychoeducational groups. So I have a website that's fworthington-forgiveness.com. has a lot of free material on there that anybody can use uh, to, to run a group to help people forgive. But we've run a couple of studies in which we've taken that material and written it into a self, a do-it-yourself workbook. And people can just work through this workbook on their own. It turns out they, uh, in three different studies, uh, they do just as well as in groups. And one of the studies, which was a kind of a faith congruent study. Uh, they did twice as well as even the groups. We've w worked with couples and uh, looked at uh, early married couples and, and then couples that have been married a longer time and tried to teach them how to use the, the REACH model in their 
uh, marriage or in their relationship. So we've done different modalities. We just finished one in Australia that was an active online interactive study. So we made this website available and people would come to it and go through exercises there online. So I think uh, the technology of delivering these REACH interventions, REACH forgiveness interventions, is kind of spreading out. One of the more interesting applications that I saw looking at your work was using REACH in Africa. So what are you doing with that project? I have a grant with the Templeton World Charity Foundation, and my life mission is to do all I can to promote forgiveness in every willing heart, home, and homeland. And so that means, can I do something to help people in other countries and other continents forgive? And that grant is aimed at establishing two centers, one in West Africa, one in South Africa, and having young scholars, about 19 in the West Africa Center and 14 in South Africa, that do projects to research projects on forgiveness. And my job is to help them learn about forgiveness and to facilitate their being able to do this research. So we've worked with them to improve their research skills. So a couple of the different places are using the REACH forgiveness model as their projects. I don't make them do that. They just wanted to. And so one in South Africa and one in uh, West Africa is Uh, trying an intervention with people who are Africans and culturally adapting the intervention to make it sensitive to their culture. So you talked about hearts, homes, and homelands as three different levels. When you're working with forgiveness on an individual level, we've talked a lot about that. And then also you started with forgiveness in in homes and and couples and and families. What does forgiveness mean on a homeland, like on a national level? In one way... We're trying to help the people, these researchers in Africa, build a base of research. So we did a started out doing a literature review of all the research on forgiveness ever done in Africa as a continent. And it was like 60 studies. Well, we have 33 researchers that are doing projects in Africa. So we're hoping that this will lead to, you know, just making a research base that's three, four times as much as it is right now. But I've been privileged over the years to be, at one point, a visiting scholar for the South African government. That was back when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was just starting out. And so I had the chance to speak to major universities at that point and also meet with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and talk about national policies of forgiveness. I went to Singapore several years back, talked to 250 justices in their family court system, 200 plus police officers. And so I'm trying in different areas to intervene in a way that this can spread out within a system. Right now, I'm involved with a project in uh, Colombia, in South America, in which the civil war that went on for almost 50 years there uh, has been resolved, and, and there's they're trying to tentatively take steps towards some kind of peacemaking. And, uh, and so I'm involved in a funded project to try to teach forgiveness to people who are going to be negotiating how do we live together with somebody we've been an enemy with for 50 years. So in different places, it's shown up in different ways. 
had a guy who's a sociologist who is also a Catholic priest that came by and stayed with me for a week back uh, maybe 15 years ago and gave a seminar here at VCU. And what he did was take my REACH model and put it in a Latin American context and start a program that functioned in 10 different Latin American countries. He won an award from UNESCO for his work in forgiveness. And that was in some countries in the prison systems, in some countries it's in the political uh, process, in some it's schools. And so he was very flexible in intervening where there was a need and uh, and engaging people to come alongside of him and start these programs in the different countries. Over your career, you've made amazing steps to spread this research that started with with your personal work to the entire globe and working with people in, in completely different ways that it may not seem immediately obvious and, and creating uh, a broad network of people who are interested in supporting these kinds of ideas. But I'm curious if in your personal life you found it difficult to apply these things that you've conceptually worked out. Yeah, I'm like the, the uber forgiver, right? No. I, you know, I had a professor who gave me a B. Can you imagine that? that the professor had the nerve to give me? It took me 10 years to forgive this guy. So it's not easy. Forgiveness is difficult. Uh, I did, you know, have some uh, pretty, uh, I mean, if you live long enough, anybody is going to have difficult things to deal with. My mom was murdered back in 1996. And so I struggled to forgive the young man who did that and was able to do that. And my brother and my sister were too. Uh, were able to forgive him. And then my brother, though, had a PTSD problem as a result of discovering my mom's body, and, and he ended up committing suicide 10 years later. And then I struggled with self-forgiveness over failures to do what I knew I could do to prevent that. I, I'm not sure that we can ever prevent someone who wants to take their life, but uh, but I knew I could have done a lot more, and I, I had trouble with self-condemnation. And and I struggled with that for more like three years, whereas the forgiving the young man who killed my mom was within you know a short period of time. Having had those experiences, I know a lot of your research now focuses on the intersection of forgiveness and justice. Could you talk a little bit about that work that you're doing now and, and questions you're interested in answering moving forward? Conceptually, a, a lot of people will say, you know, I don't want to forgive because we can't get justice. You know, and so they 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 make this dichotomy like it's got to be either forgiveness or justice. But what we found in our research is that justice is a social or societal issue. But forgiveness happens inside my skin. It's a decision or it's an emotional change. And for example, I was able to forgive the young man who murdered my mom, but if he got caught by the justice system, it wouldn't matter whether I forgave him or not. You know, he would have to face the societal justice system. On the other hand, one of the things we've done lately is to make a scale up to measure what we call the injustice gap. And this is what's internal. This is my sense of injustice, my sense of how much injustice has been done to me. And what we have found with that is that instead of working against forgiveness, they actually work together. 
So as you can imagine, the less injustice that I feel, the more likely I am to forgive. So therefore, the more justice you perceive that has been done, the more forgiving you are. So for example, if someone hurts me and I see them struggling and I see that they're crying and they're they're really upset and I'm going, oh, they're suffering. This is justice. It gets easier to forgive them. If they take responsibility, I go, that wasn't easy. That was hard to take responsibility. It's easier to forgive. They apologize to me. I know that was hard. That's more justice easier to forgive. They make amends. More justice, easier to forgive. Justice is working. My sense of justice is working along with the forgiveness. They're they're moving in the same direction instead of against each other. And so, you know, we've been trying to do things from the standpoint of looking, for example, at sense of justice and forgiveness uh, in social political systems. So we did a meta-analysis of 40-some-odd studies uh, about how people perceive conflicts in society, in the society that they live with. And so making sense out of that research is the way we deal with justice on a societal level. And then the injustice gap is so much easier to measure with individual people. We did a set of three studies in which we wire people up to physiological, peripheral physiology measuring devices, and then we have them receive an apology or not. Well, they receive an apology, they forgive more. We have them receive an offer of restitution, they forgive more. We did a behavioral study of restorative justice in which we had people role play doing a crime, stealing from a a guy, and then let them go through a mediation process where we had someone else role playing the victim and someone role playing the victim's mother and someone role playing their own mother, and then we had a trained mediator in with them. Out of eight subjects where we had the offender give an apology and offer to make amends for what they had done, out of that, eight people, five of those eight cried spontaneously in this role play. It's a powerful experience to apologize publicly for wrongdoing. Of course, what that generated in the people, in the victims, was a much more willingness to forgive. So we can study this in one scientific way in a one-on-one or an experiment or questionnaire study or physiological study, but uh, we can also also study this at a larger system level by looking at making sense out of a number of different studies that people have done in different cultures and doing what's called a meta-analysis, an analysis of each of those findings that we put them on the same metric and see how different things work. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and speaking with me today. I feel like there's an immense amount that I and everyone can learn from the research that you do. I very much appreciate your work. Thank you. Thank you. I've learned a lot from it. (laughs) So I get a lot of pleasure out of doing research. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for a new episode of Why Science every other Thursday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and our home website, kobe.vcu.edu. Until next time, take care.